So I, I have a friend, Richard, and if anybody knows Raz, they'll appreciate the story. But I would basically just message him four lines of code over AOL Instant Messenger every day. And then he would tell me how bad it is. And I, I gamified making him rewrite the program four lines of code at a time. And at the end of it, I had a working load balancer, but I really just sent terrible code to Richard and he would be like, you're an idiot, do this. And I was like, what about this? He's like, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. Do this instead. I'm Matt Levine. I'm the founder and CTO at Cashfly. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Like six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve Most more. proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure is a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Matt Levine built a tailored CDN for your dynamic content with superior throughput and unmatched versatility. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy managed file transfer tools lack proper security, putting sensitive data at risk. With KiteWorks MFT, companies can send automated or ad hoc files in a fully integrated, highly secure manner. The solution is FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense and has been so since 2017. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. This episode is sponsored by ClearQuery. ClearQuery is the analytics for humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. With Ask ClearQuery, you can find valuable insights into your data using plain English. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify your data analytics with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash code story. Matt Levine grew up in Toronto, played sports as a baseball catcher. During his teens, he got injured and had to sit out for a season. And during that time, he started to dig into computers and became hooked. He started several businesses in high school and later founded eFront. But outside of tech, he's married with a couple of kids and likes to play golf. While working in Arizona, Matt was approached by a now competitor called Limelight. He knew the founders and he was approached to become a team member, specifically to help start a network. He felt that it wasn't a good time to do that, but it was a good time to start and build a CDN. This is the creation story of Cashfly. So Cashfly, we help people deliver web content faster. So the most obvious example I can probably give in this scenario is the download of this podcast. We basically offload people's typically media files, but it can be anything. And we cache a copy of those files in, I think we're now in 68 cities all over the world. The reason we're doing that is we're trying to cheat the speed of light. There's a certain physics component to how fast something can download. So there's two parts, basically. One is how wide your bandwidth is. So whether you have a 10 meg connection at home or a 50 meg or 100 meg connection, that's the maximum limit. And then the other part of how fast it downloads is basically how quickly the computers can talk to each other. 
and that is bound by the speed of light. All things being equal, you will download something faster from a server in Texas than you will in Australia. Like any good idea, I stole it. I was working in Arizona at the time, and there was a company that still exists today, a competitor, and I knew three out of the four founders, and they approached me, and I think I would have been employee number five or six, and there's a 500-pound gorilla at the time in our space called Akamai, and Akamai had a history of either buying competitors or suing competitors, not necessarily in that order. So there was a company called Speedera, who's the number two. Akamai was in the process of suing slash buying them. The folks at Limelight had built a backbone network previously. They'd sold it to a company called Global Crossing, and their non-compete was up, and they wanted to build another network. And their view was that CDN, especially with this opportunity of, of there not being a, a number two in the space, was a great way to get bits onto a network. So there was lots of ways you could provide people connectivity. CDN was this new way. They thought that'd be a great way. And I remember being in the room still, they said, CDN is the new CrossConnect. And I remember my brain being like, I'm pretty sure CDN is the new CDN. Like, I don't, I don't, and I don't think you want to be a network. I think you want to be a CDN. And they were like, no, we want to be a network. We want to do this. We want to do that. At the end of the day, I turned them down. Like I said, I think I would have been employee number five or six. But then in the back of my brain, I was like, but it is a good time to start a CDN. Started building it, a POC. I always found the network technology stuff interesting. And there was a company way back then called UltraDNS that was the first commercial service that used Anycast, where you could ping one IP address, and depending on where you were in the world, it went to a different pop. And that, at the time, blew my mind. So I wondered if I could build something using this Anycast thing that could be a CDN. And at the time, everybody said, no, you could never use Anycast for that, because Anycast is meant for short-lived things and content or long-lived connections. It's going to break, yada, yada, yada. So it was basically like a friends and family kind of beta for the first year and a half, two years and built it, got it going, and it turns out you can build a, a, a CDN on Anycast. And so I, I gave a presentation with my friend Barrett, who, who was doing the same thing at the time uh, with a different company, that told me, like, basically, I think, think the title of the presentation was like, Anycast Stop Spreading FUD, or something like that, at an event called Nanog, which is Network Industry Get Together in North America. That was it. And then in 2005, so probably two and a half years after that got built, we launched Cashfly as the sort of retail brand. For whatever reason, I find it, I don't know if offensive is the word, but I find it troubling slash offensive when like the only person you can buy something from is, some, is a giant corporation. And so like it, it, I found it offensive that the only way to buy CDN, and now that we're talking 2005, the only way you could host something well on the internet was by being this like big enterprise customer of this big enterprise company. And so Cashfly, we set out to make that as like the, the great equalizer, if you will. You could sign up with a credit card that, that you could, for 15 bucks was the cheapest plan. The plans were like $15.99, $2.99. And at the time, it probably cost Akamai $1,000 on their side just to print an invoice. Like I think it was probably a $10,000 entry point. And you had to go through an enterprise sales process. There was no way you could self-provision. Yeah, so that, that was the startup phase was seeing that market opportunity that Limelight saw. And then taking a little bit different approach, they went for that enterprise market as well. And we were the kinder, gentler, small business friendly, but also big business friendly. Like in the first three, four years, we probably had three or 4,000 customers. And it, it was the largest gamut possible. So it was everybody from small mom and pop, not even small mom and pop, from some person's website that was just their personal homepage up to somebody like a Procter & Gamble. 
The timing was good because we also got into podcasting right when podcasting started. So it was at the point where when Apple and the podcast store would feature somebody on the homepage, they'd let you know a week in advance. Like, hey, we're going to feature you in the podcast store. Who do you use for hosting? And if it's not Cashfly, you should call Cashfly. Let's dive into the MVP of Cashfly. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools do you use to bring something like this to life? MVP for Cashfly was that retail thing. But the MVP of the CDN, which kind of preceded that, like I said, today we're 68 pops. The MVP of the CDN was two. (laughs) We got to have West Coast, East Coast. That's the first thing. So we were in Palo Alto in New Jersey was the that first version. It needed to have statistics and reporting. The original one I built using a web server that no it still exists, a web server called Light HTTPD, which lost the web server battles for the most part. But it was the first it was sort of a precursor to Nginx, which today is the big one that people use in open source. But Lighty preceded Nginx and we were using FreeBSD. This is way too geeky, but I wrote the KQ implementation that for Lighty for FreeBSD. And anybody who knows me should know that should be terrifying to anybody that ever used Light HDPD because I did not know C, still do not know C, and yet cobbled together a KQ handler for it so we could actually scale it under load. So C was never my thing, but we also needed to scale horizontally within each of those data centers, east and west. And there wasn't a whole lot of load balancing technology available back then. So I also wrote a, a BPF-based load balancer that would receive a, receive a frame, rewrite the MAC address to the destination server based on a weighted round-robin and keep a state table and all these things. And I was not capable of writing that. So I, I have a friend. I would basically just message him four lines of code over AOL Instant Messenger every day. And then he would tell me how bad it is. And I, I gamified making him rewrite the program four lines of code at a time. And at the end of it, I had a working load balancer, but I really just sent terrible code to Richard and he would be like, you're an idiot, do this. And I was like, what about this? He's like, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. Do this instead. That was the two things we needed to make it work from like an MVP of a, can we deliver people's content at scale? And so our first two MVP users would have been my friend Nate's website. So a site called betanews.com. And at the time, one of the most popular, if not the most popular instant messaging clients at the time was software called Trillion one of the first multi-IM clients where you could be on AOL and ICQ and all these things that don't exist anymore. So Trillium was also an MVP. So we hosted all the Trillium downloads and software updates and stuff like that. The actual portal interface was PHP, MySQL, that traditional LAMP stack. I guess we're FreeBSD, a FAMP stack, but we were probably still running Apache for the actual portal. It was just light HDB on the delivery side. And the weirdest thing about it all, actually, is so a traditional CDN is a cache that sits in front of your web server. It would be, we get a request. If we don't have it, we go ask for it from somewhere else where somewhere else is your origin. Then we cache it. Back then, it was a push thing. So if there was a trillion update, they would FTP it to us or rsync it or something. And then we would push the files out to the pop. So it wasn't even a cache, the MVP. It was actually just distributed web servers and the caching became something we really dove into later the mvp was really just distributed web servers syncing files between them a little bit of a reporting interface and some really well written code by richard for the load balancer that started as really poorly written code by me this episode is sponsored by kiteworks legacy managed file transfer tools are dated and lack the security that today's remote workforce demands 
Companies that continue relying on outdated technology put their sensitive data at risk. And that's where KiteWorks comes in. KiteWorks MFT is absolutely the most secure MFT on the market today. It has been FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense since 2017. Through FedRAMP, KiteWorks level of security compliance provides a fast route to CMMC compliance, saving customers time, effort, and money. KiteWorks MFT makes it easy for users to send automated or ad hoc files via fully integrated shared folders and email. Administrators can manage policies in a unified console and create custom integrations using their API. Did we mention it's secure? The level of security with KiteWorks solution is rare to find. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. That's K-I-T-E-W-O-R-K-S dot com. This episode is sponsored by CashFly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where CashFly comes in. CashFly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, CashFly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only CashFly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5-terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at CashFly.com slash CodeStory. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash CodeStory. So you've got the MVP, it's working. You've got it to a stable point. You're getting some traction. Tell me about how you progressed and matured it from there. And I'm curious about how you you know, formulated or put together your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Cashfly. There really was no roadmap for friends and family, right? It was like, make it work and then question mark. And so we filled in that first blank of question mark with, we should make it so people can sign up regardless of how big they are. That was like the first thing. So then the roadmap right before we launched quickly switched into, okay, how do we make this something that's self-provisionable? Because at the time, provisioning was you write Matt an email, Matt types SQL into a SQL server, and edits configs manually and things like that. So the first step was how do we make it when you sign up and click, by the time you, you push a file, everything exists everywhere and seamless. So the first part of the roadmap was making the self-provisioning seamless so that Nobody noticed that it took a while to sync configs east and west and things like that. And then the second thing was east and west could only last for so long. So the real first part of the roadmap was, okay, Akamai had 8,000 networks at the time, or 8,000 pops. We had two. So we needed to figure out how to... And we were never... The goal was never to get to 8,000, but the goal was to be like, okay, how can we mirror that performance but way more efficiently? So some of the roadmap was where are we going to build and how are we going to build it on the delivery side. On the product side, it was totally user-driven because we didn't. there was nothing we could model, right? So today, if you said, okay, I'm going to start a CDN today, you log into somebody's control panel and you go, okay, we need this. And that's how you at least build your roadmap and then you sort it based on who you're going after. We had the first mover advantage and the first mover disadvantage. And so it, the roadmap was really built just based on customer feedback and tickets and support issues and things like that. 
the roadmap just looked like, what could we build this week that would allow one more person to, to use us? And then behind that one, that was the vocal one, there was 20 or 40 or 100 silent users who didn't open a support ticket and just went somewhere else or stopped trying to build a CD, use a CDN or whatever it was. If there's anything that I learned early on, it was that for every one user who complains, there's really at least 10x, probably 100x people that have that problem, but they don't complain. They just leave. They're not going to take the time to write a really well-structured support ticket and tell you why and how it would benefit them and yada, 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 and what they pay. It just became trying to curate that list and go, okay, where do we think the biggest leverage is behind the scenes that we don't know about? Who would this be for and how many people would this unlock, if you will, if we built it? And around that time, so this is maybe late 2005, early 2006, the time I was building everything myself, and I said, okay, that's not going to work. If we're going to roll out two, three, one, even features a week, I can't do it all. So we actually outsourced the portal development to a, a dev shop who was in Poland, and they did a very good job of, I'd like to say, building in a vacuum. They were arm's length away from the actual end user. They were arm length away from the direct feedback from customers weren't really involved in the company roadmap and scaling and all those sorts of things. So actually did a very good job, all things considered. There was no method to the madness for the roadmap. It was just whatever the newest thing to pop up that seemed shiniest got built first. So then how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? We're an engineering-driven organization, I think would be the way I would describe it. And it's in our core value statement today. So today it's an obvious answer. But as, as I look back over time, it wasn't quite that codified. But the number one thing we looked for with people was a value that I like to call clueful. That was the nicest compliment a geek could give another geek on IRC in 1997. <laughs> Raz was the most clueful person I knew when it came to building C code. That's the way you would look for help, right? So you'd be on, you'd, you'd be in a channel on IRC and you'd say, hey, I'm I'm trying to configure a Juniper router. You would just say, hey, who who's around right now that has Juniper Clue? I, I've struggled to find the definition of Clueful over the years. The time I'm most looking for somebody Clueful is when I'm calling my internet provider or my telephone provider or an airline's call center. All I'm trying to gauge in the first one minute is whether that person I got connected with is Clueful, like AKA can work the system. Sometimes it's not polished on a resume, Sometimes it's not something that they can easily communicate, but when you find them in their area of expertise and they're just so easily able to answer questions that, that should be challenging or they're able to quickly get in the zone, they just get stuff done. And so that's mostly what we look for is people that you could just throw in a situation. And at the most basic level, Clueful is at each fork in the road, if you have the decision of doing something smart in this situation or doing something stupid in this situation, you choose to do the smart thing. So it was people that could navigate unforeseen waters and just go, oh, I'm going to do this seems smarter, so I'm going to do that. And this seems smarter, so I'm going to keep going this direction. And we were never a process-driven or a well-documented or a... I've never been worried that somebody at Cashfly has been overtrained. So it's a lot of people getting thrown in the fire and you got to... Clueful people thrive in that situation. And I think that's what we've always had success with is finding people that can do that. Hello, welcome to the Data Analytics Club. Do you know the password? No, I didn't know there was one. Do you know how to code? Uh, no. Do you know how to query data? Like, ask a question? I guess not. Hmm, I see. Then you can't be in this club. Sorry, goodbye. Don't be left out of the Analytics Club. Clear Query is the Analytics for Humans platform. 
With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. ClearQuery provides you with the information you need without requiring you to do the heavy lifting. Their Ask ClearQuery feature allows you to ask questions in plain English, helping you find relationships and connections in your data that may have previously gone unnoticed. You can even visualize your data with presentation mode, taking your data storytelling to the next level. Pricing is based on storage, not licenses, and that ensures that you get the most bang for your buck. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify data analytics, your data analytics, with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. This episode is sponsored by Cashfly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where Cashfly comes in. Cashfly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, Cashfly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only Cashfly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5-terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at cashfly.com slash codestory. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash codestory. Let's talk about scalability. This is your bread and butter, I'm sure. But I'm curious if, you know, was this built to scale efficiently from day one? Or was there anywhere where you kind of had to fight it as you grew? If it was scalable from day one, it wasn't by design. (laughs) That would have been accidental. There was no timeline for the business. But if you went back to 2002 me and told him that you'd be doing an interview about Cashfly in 2023 he'd be very confused because it was probably like a five to eight year time horizon in my brain. We'll flip this and move on to something else. Where we run into to scalability challenges tends to be around people. I like to say that we grow to hire. We don't hire to grow. Sometimes that puts you right along the knife's edge as to what you should be doing at any given time. I don't know that we've always had the... I, we've always prided ourselves on being efficient in terms of headcount. Again, part of that being like the, we don't want to be the giant enterprise. That's what we always, we were the anti-value for that. So we've always tried to have a small team. I have no doubt that we have the best team today for our size, for what we're delivering. But the question in terms of scalability is always, but could we be moving faster if we had more? Or would more be slowing us down? Because there's that training hurdle, there's getting people on board. And so sometimes you have to move slow now to move fast later and sometimes you just need to move fast now on the flip side the actual scalability challenge we had was during covid we were one of those businesses that happened to be on the good side of growth during covid like our traffic went through the roof so as soon as the world was stuck in their house we got a lot of traffic in terms of growth and not a lot of time and normally that's okay because we're a technology company and it's pretty straightforward but for that Eventually, we need to add servers, we need to add hardware, we need to get it deployed in data centers, and we need to get it turned on and plugged in. And when that growth started to happen, we found the supply chain gap from China when, because of their COVID lockdowns, so we couldn't buy new equipment, and the lead time was too long. 
we eventually found used equipment that we could buy quickly. But if we could find that, then FedEx and UPS couldn't actually pick it up or deliver it in any sane delivery window. And if they did deliver it on time, then most data centers weren't letting people in to rack new equipment because of COVID. We became a logistics company for two months, trying to figure out that part of scalability, which was challenging, but we were successful and it, it was actually a very good growth period for us. We added a lot of headcount during COVID. It served us well moving forward as now we know that we can do those logistics things better than we used to be able to. And that was one of the reasons we scaled. Like I think coming out of COVID, we might've been in 35 locations and now we're in just short of 70. And one of the reasons is we found some scalability and maybe confidence in our ability to do things in, in shipping, receiving, customs brokerage, vendor selection, all those things. If you're in a cloud world, you, you, that's what that's why you're paying a cloud premium for, is to avoid all that stuff. The non-differentiated heavy lifting, to quote AWS. For us, we have to do our own non-differentiated heavy lifting. And it's something that's easy to avoid or was easy to avoid. And then when we got some reps in pretty fast, it turns out we could scale that way pretty well. All right, Matt. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? That we're still here. 20 years is a long time, especially most recently, like in the last two weeks, two of our competitors have literally said, we're getting out of the CDN business, can't do it. And they're just a two in a long line of 30 that have come and gone probably since we started. So the longevity, I think, is something to be proud of. Again, 21-year-old me would have been like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to be here in 20 years doing the same thing? But I think that's a testament to the people, though. I'm still impressed with how much we do now that I don't, I'm not involved in. <laughs> and that's a recent change. That's probably in the last five years. But that's what I'm most impressed by is how self-sufficient most of the organization is now. Getting us there really today doesn't really involve me a whole lot. Okay, well, let, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. We turned off self-signups for five years. What really changed is who entered the space was Amazon, Microsoft, Google, because each of their clouds have a CDN component. Akamai, as the 500-pound gorilla, was a $10 billion company. Now we're talking about trillions in market cap playing in the space. And so we, early on, when clouds started getting some traction, we basically went to a pay-as-you-go model which is what you get with a CloudFront or a Google CDN or a, a micro Azure CDN, is you can sign up in your cloud portal, push one byte. doesn't cost you anything. So we went pay as you go, and we were just flooded with support requests because we were not built to handle people, for lack of a better term, that didn't know what they were doing. Our documentation wasn't for, hey, you've never used a CDN before. You have no idea what this is. You've just committed four cents to setting up your account. Here you go. We just got so many signups that it overwhelmed us from a support perspective. The team's reaction was like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> My gut reaction was like, okay, this is crazy. We need to turn this off. And we continued to go after larger customers, which was the way we'd been growing anyway. And then six, six seven months ago, we went back to, we do need to allow people to not have to go through an enterprise sales gauntlet in order to get an account signed up. Because actually that's the value. That was our anti-value. That's, that's where the world was in 2005 when we said, this is stupid. We should build a way for people to, to onboard themselves. 
the team's reaction this time around was quite different. Instead of being like, oh my god, what a support headache, everybody really moved towards a way more permanent solution to things that had previously been temporary. So things we used to just enable for enterprise customers because they said, hey, I need this. We'd go, of course, it's on for you. That just happened in their POC cycle. We started automating and turning into things that you could make an API call for that were well documented that you could turn on yourself in the portal. The team's reaction the second time around to my mistake has definitely been a lot more productive for both us and our customers and even the people that are in the sort of quote-unquote enterprise world are benefiting from that from having those things that they can self-provision and it's a lot less manual hand-holding today than it used to be okay this will be fun what does the future look like for cashfly for the the product and for your team for the team it still looks like we have to be clueful we still need to keep that efficiency. So it's still always going to look like a small team. And today, I think we have a big team, but it's a small team for where we are in terms of, let's say, customer count or revenue or bandwidth or whatever you want to slice it along. So it's more the efficiency number. So there's a numerator and there's a divisor. And I just always want to be considered a small, efficient, clueful team for whatever it is that we're doing. And then what it looks like for the product, it's more on that automation side. It's getting back into where we were 20 years ago of how do we make it so people can do all this themselves and never have to go through the pain, heartache, and frustration of having to talk to a sales rep to get what you want. So a lot on the automation side. And then what the product looks like on the delivery side, like the actual CDN, I think we're hitting an inflection point on... There's like a whole bunch of things coming together. We're going to have 8K video content as a standard. We've got 5G rolling out. There's this sort of push towards the edge, if you will. And so the, the overall premise of a CDN, we go in front of your content and we cache it all at the edge and it makes it faster. In practice, what happens is we go in front of your content, we cache almost none of it and it makes it faster. And that's only going to accelerate. But like the size of customer libraries has been larger than the CDN can cash for them for 25 years. But we don't talk about it that way. It's like the dirty little secret. And as a result, if you're doing a CDN performance test, even if you're trying to do quote-unquote real user monitoring, if you're trying to bake off between CDNs, it's like a TCP fight uh, or an HTTP fight. It's just like, how fast can our server in Equinix, Los Angeles, serve a user on AT&T or, or formerly AT&T DSL line, as opposed to Akamai's server in Equinix in Los Angeles, as opposed to Fastly's server that has it in RAM in Equinix Los Angeles. Like We keep talking about the challenges and customers keep perceiving the challenges as how quickly can you serve a file from cache. And it's the wrong question today, and it's definitely going to be the wrong question in the next five years or so. I think the bigger question is, what's the difference in the user experience when a file is served from cache from when it's not? Because there's only going to be more and more served not from cache. Today, we're t we talk about cache misses versus cache hits. I think, ca and, and today, all anybody cares about is cache hit performance, because there's sort of an implication that everything will be a hit. And the reality is it's not today, and it's definitely not going to be in the future. So I think product-wise, the, the focus will be on cache miss performance and demonstrating how well or how much we can help people when something isn't in cash. Let's switch to you, Matt. 
who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I would like to say it's Andy Grove and high output management, but I don't think it is. I think those are, that's, I would say if I'm, if I wanted to have a management style, it would probably look like that, but I don't think that's what we do. I do like to read a lot of business management books and frameworks and things like that. And I treat them a little bit like religion, which is like tune into the things that resonate with you and you tend to ignore most of the rest of the document. That's where I'm at today is I don't know that I'm, I have any one person that I'm trying to model per se, but I'm trying to take the best that works for us out of every framework. Because I've also found that it's not the idea. It's like where you are or where the business is in its life cycle when you're implementing it. So the right idea at the wrong time is way worse than not having the idea at all. So there's a component to that sticks in my brain that I'm always trying to find the right thing for what we need now. There's no book that's ever perfectly written for what my business needs right now. That's always something you have to synthesize from all the inputs. But I like all the classic business authors. I'd have a hard time highlighting anybody other than high output management. There's something for everybody in everything. I can't remember whose quote it is, but somebody said, if you think the last book you read has the best ideas, you haven't read enough books. Matt, last question. You're getting on a plane, sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit for a while? For somebody who's a a new startup, I don't know that I have great business advice for them. I think I have good technical advice for them. Like like I said, we're an engineering company at our core. If we were going to write a book, it would be a lot more about our engineering principles than our like business principles. But the first thing I would say on the technical side is it would be crazy not to build whatever it is you're building on some sort of cloud infrastructure. But you need a plan to get off of it as soon as you hit traction. That's the only way you get leverage A, on your capital and B, on your competition. And C, that's the way you don't give whoever that cloud provider is a crazy amount of margin on your business. But you have to use it when you're small. But where I see most companies fail on the technical side is not having an exit strategy. Because realistically, once you're at scale, that's the first thing you need to do is get those cogs under control. And the only way to do that in a cloud world is to figure out what you can either move off totally or build a hybrid environment, something like that. So that's my technical advice is absolutely build on cloud. But everything you're building, make sure your engineers, your developers, everybody is thinking about and what would this look like when we're ready to move? But the good news is that's only a problem you have when you're successful. There's no unsuccessful businesses that shouldn't have been on the cloud when they failed. On the business side, I think the thing I would tell them today is if they don't have a co-founder, which I didn't when I started Cashly, get a strong number two as best you can. Like all the success I'm talking about recently in terms of people and not being involved day to day, all of that is only because I found somebody who is unbelievably amazing at running the day-to-day so that I don't have to. I don't think there's a large cross-section of skills of you're an amazing founder who can build a product from nowhere and figure out how to pitch it to investors and first customers and market it. And you also love enforcing that people on your team are following a checklist. And you also love managing the budget and you're going to do a great job at it better than somebody else. Like 
you got to find a way where all those jobs that you're doing day one because you're the only one there goes to people who are better at it than you and you should only be doing stuff you're better at than everybody else which again is not is in no way uh unique or new advice i think it's every business book i would have cited if i built the list basically says that find where the leverage is on your time but more importantly make sure you only have to delegate that once like you've got your number two you've got that person who can focus on operations and you say here's where it needs to be go make that happen so you're not the one making it happen every day i think that would be the advice i I wish i had given somebody given to me and or that i had listened when somebody gave it to me sooner Uh, that's fantastic advice well matt thank you for being on the show today thank you for telling the creation story of cashfly thanks for having me Noah. this was great And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.